0: Let's pray together. Father, we are here because your gospel is not just some private enterprise, but it is a public operation that it requires people, people who relate to one another, people who love one another, people who um, encourage one another, sharpen each other. We thank you for bringing the people in our lives that you have used to change us and to lead us. And so, Father, we're here this morning to sing praises to you, to declare your glory, to declare your goodness, your beauty, and your truth not as individuals, but as a community, as a body, as a fellowship. So Father, we ask that these, we pray that these um, words and music of praise is pleasing to you. And we look forward to the time when we see you face to face and things bring clarity. But Father, we're also thankful for these moments that pass each day, pass each, mo- each each day in our lives, each time the sun rises that you have given us. And Father, we want to surrender and submit to your leadership and your authority. We ask that you grow our love for you each moment. That it increases with the proper awe and the proper submission and the proper respect, but also the compassion and the love and the, and, the, and, and the emotional commitment we have towards you. So Father, we thank you again for this morning. We ask you to use your word for your purposes in our lives and in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. I've decided I had to xerox off the passage so that I can see it these days. This is really—it was really frustrating (laughs) to go back to the verse and go, "No, what? Where am I? Where am I?" So um, I thought, "Well, I'm just going to copy it off on a sheet of paper and be able to see it a little bit better." Uh, A while back, there was a um, New York Times ran an article on uh, the stories and the books that children are reading to their to their children these days. And, uh, and what they're not using. And it was kind of a history of these children tales, of these kid- tales that we read and they hear as kids and that we read on and, and tell our kids. And uh, uh, there was a little bit of history about the fairy tales that, uh, that people tell and people read and people show their children. And uh, it's really interesting that very, very few parents these days ever use the fairy tales. And uh, they talked about the original intent of these fairy tales, that uh, they were not... Written down by the, by the Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen and people like that. They weren't written down just to entertain kids, but they were there to teach kids. And basically they were there to teach kids about the darkness. And, when, and if you go back and look at them, they are pretty dark indeed. Uh, they, uh, we, you know, my daughter loved Cinderella. I watched the video, the Disney video, over and over and over again growing up. But uh, did you know in the original fairy tale that it ends with the stepsisters, uh, their eyes being plucked out by pigeons and then spending the rest of their life as blind beggars? <laughs> and, uh, and Snow White, <clears throat> Snow White, the, the, the queen sent the huntsman out to uh, kill her, of course. We knew that. And, uh, but he was also to bring her heart back to the queen. And as punishment for the queen at the end, She uh, has to dance to her death in red-hot iron shoes. And uh, and Pinocchio is another one. Uh, You know, we have Jiminy Cricket on the Disney version. Well, actually, the companion, the companion cricket, was actually killed by Pinocchio with a hammer because the cricket made fun of his wooden head. Those are pretty dark, let me tell you. That is some dark stuff. And uh, I don't blame the parents at all for not wanting to use that to raise their kids. And I, know about, I don't know about you guys, but we kind of wanted to protect Katie from some of that darkness. And, uh, and she did. She got into the, the fairy tales, uh, the, but the Disney version. But the, today they were saying in the Times article that parents aren't even using those, not even using the, the sanitized versions of the fairy tales for their kids. And instead they're reading books like uh, Aliens Love Underpants, um, the Hungry Caterpillar, uh, Good Night Moon, uh, my daughter's favorite when she was little was The Little Mouse, The Red Ripe Strawberry, and The Big Hungry Bear. And those are great, great stories, those are great, you know, great literature. And then as she got older, we read other things uh, like uh, the, A Little Princess, um, A Secret Garden, and uh, we, we were. It was hard, At those times, it was kind of hard to get a hold of English books, but there was an English library there that had the whole set of the Wizard of Oz series, which if you didn't know, there are 14 of them, and uh, we read every single one of them with, with Katie growing up, and uh, those are, are nice stories, and they do have some conflict, they do have some dark sides, you know, into it, but in, in the end, everything is, ends up happy and... and uh, you know the villain sort of gets his gets what he deserves a little bit, but it's nothing really. It's nothing like po- poking your eyes out by pigeons, anything like that. So that it's kind of what it is. And I still remember my first encounter, my recollection, my first recollection of my first encounter with darkness. And I must have been first or second grade. I'm trying to remember because I remember where we were living at the time. And I was playing with a friend of mine in the neighborhood, and we went to his house and we watched an episode of The Twilight Zone. And uh, The Twilight Zone was forbidden land in my house, okay, at least for my age it was. I think my brother used to watch it, but, uh, but we couldn't watch it. And I can even still tell you the scene that scared me, I can still tell you the, um, uh, the plot of the story about well, that, that particular episode of, of The Twilight Zone. And it was frightening. And I hadn't you know, slept with a stuffed animal in years, but I did that night, you know. Uh, And it's important that we do learn about the darkness. It it is important. The darkness is important to learn about. And, but it's not, we all know that that darkness is is created in the imagination of a child. Most of us at our age, as adults, teenagers and adults, we've had encounters with darkness. And uh, if I were to give you a minute, uh, you could probably come up with quite a list of losses, of people. Of moments that were incredibly dark. Uh, Sue and I have had our fair share of dark moments and I'm sure you have too and uh, those are just part of reality. Um, It's not just the imagination of a child any longer. It is real life and uh, we need to take it seriously and uh, fortunately uh, God tells us to take it seriously too because he gave us the prophets. And the prophets are pretty dark. They are pretty dark. And if we're in Isaiah this morning, uh, continuing on in our series, which next week we will be getting in the second half of Isaiah, but this first half of Isaiah is pretty dark. And he, uh, he is painting a picture of gloom and anguish uh, for Judah and Israel, the coming exile, the, the dispersion of Israel, the conquering by Assyria. It's pretty dark. And if you... Uh, if you take the poetry, the way he talks about it, and you let your imagination kind of kind of bathe, and you have the poetry bathe your imagination with that. You can just imagine what's going on, and all you have to do is open the newspaper and see what's going on, especially in other parts of the world. Uh, this, just the starvation and anguish, just as a result of war and famine and and uh, greed and um, and cruelty, basically. And so that's what we have in Isaiah chapter nine. It starts off with verse one. That Rob just read and he says uh, but there'll be no gloom or anguish in the former time in the former time he brought the contempt on Zebulun but in the latter time there'll be a glorious way and it's really interesting that in the Hebrew Bible this verse is actually attached to chapter 8 but in the English Bible we they attach this verse to chapter 9 which is really kind of a toss-up because it is supposed to be a bridge between chapter 8 and chapter 9 and in chapter eight, really, verses the chapters one through eight is all about the darkness. Is all about the heavy time. Even in chapter seven, we looked at last week with Emmanuel. There is this glimmer of hope, and that Matthew even takes that, that story and and uh, and pushes it forward. He in that the story surges forward, where there really is a true a virgin who gives birth, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter 9, it kind of continues, and there is this brief promise of light. There's this brief promise of of overcoming the darkness. Because when we discover that the darkness, the, the scariest place of where the darkness resides is in the human heart. And again, all we have to do is look at the prophets and look at the world and see what the human heart has been able to leash onto the earth. It is a dark place. It is no longer just danger underneath our beds. It is now right before us. So he goes on and he, he talks about this, and, and then he gives us this hope. And in chapter 2, he says he, he describes what this hope is, and this hope brings about joy. And this is what I think the, the prophet is trying to say here, is that when God acts, the evidence of it is joy. When God acts, there is joy. Joy is the most clear, recognizable evidence that God is acting. If he's moving, if he's doing something, then there's going to be joy. Because he is good, and he is beautiful, and he is true. And when we see joy, we can almost bet that God is doing something in that place. And so you have Judah in, in, in the former times and the, the latter times, and in the former times they are in anguish. It says they are in anguish and distress. There is darkness, there is covering, and we saw that last week with the, because of the king Ahaz who had made a deal with Assyria. He didn't trust God to protect him from the attacks of the north, so he made a deal with the devil, with, with Assyria, and said Assyria will come and protect them, and he had no idea that the brutality that he was unleashing on his country. And it was horrible. He was foolish, he was, he was corrupt, and he became an idolater. Up to the point where he even sacrificed his own son. That is a deep, human, deep, dark human heart. That's Ahaz. But when God acts, the darkness moves to light. And he says in verse 2 that the people walked in darkness, but now they have seen a great light, and they lived in a land of darkness. They lived in the land of shadows, and the light shone upon them, and what I think love about this is it kind of, kind of paints these two contrasting pictures. There's one where the people are actually moving, living, walking, doing things, and then there's one where it's more passive, where they're just sort of dwelling in the shadows. And I think when you think about the darkness and you think about that, that really does describe it because in the living in the darkness, you can't see the obstacles, and you know, and uh, I jammed my toe about two weeks ago on the stairs because I did not see the stairs. Uh, in the house one morning, being barefoot, of course. And that really, that really hurts. But this is kind of the idea. This is beyond that. This is not being able to see the obstacles. We're, we're, we're moving around, but we really can't see where we're going. We're lost. We're kind of feeling groping our way in the dark. But there's another way of sitting back and living in the shadows where you almost get the idea of this word here almost gives you the idea that people are paralyzed by the darkness. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to get move forward because they're dwelling in the shadows. But he says, then a light will come. A light will come, and that will be, bring joy. I can't remember whether I've told you this story or not, but one time years ago, we, were, we went to a, uh, a park for a little family outing in Cuernavaca, which is about two and a half hours from Puebla, more or less. And uh, we came back, had a great time that day, came back, and um, I, it was that night, we were driving back. And the roads in Mexico, they, they, instead of using signs a lot of times, especially if you're coming out of town, they'll put in the, um, in the middle of the road, this is in the middle of a, a highway, uh, what they call a tope, which is what we would call a, a uh, speed bump. Or uh, in Costa Rica, they call them dead policemen. so we're driving driving along on the road you know going probably 55 60 or so and I hit that tope because I did not see it it was in the dark and completely ruined the axle and I was able to limp the car home you know going about 10 miles an hour on this highway that's what happens when you don't when you live in the dark you cannot see you cannot see where you're going well he says a light comes and the light will be shining upon them. And it's it's the incredible thing here is that the only thing we have to bring is the willingness to see. All we have to do is open our eyes to look and see. And I don't know about you, but for me Christianity for many years is all about doctrine and dogma. And it wasn't about light and delight. It wasn't about opening my eyes and seeing seeing where God's act, acting, seeing where God's working, and living in joy. And even in quiet times, where I feel like, okay, I I, I get distracted. I've got I gotta read the Bible. I've got to read the Bible here. I'm, I'm spending time with God. I gotta read the Bible. Or if I'm, I'm praying and my mind starts wandering off, and I'm trying to okay refocus, refocus. You know, my mind's going all over the place. And one time, the the shades were open, and it's it I. Kind of an early riser just by nature, it's not anything spiritual about that at all. It's just my body has always been that way. And and I almost felt God nudge me in the ribs with the window open, and saying, Look. Look. And you open up and you look and you see Mount Adams. And you see that that light coming off in the east. And it's just gorgeous. And I kind of take this passage as God nudging me in the ribs going, just look, just look. That's light. That's light. And And it brings joy. When God works, it brings joy. So if you had to put it in a mathematical formula, I would say light plus open eyes equals joy. Joy is what we, joy gives us great strength and it is great depth. And I, I have struggled with this word joy for a really long time, how to figure this out. What is it? Is the emotions attached to it? And yes, there are emotions attached to it. But I am convinced that joy is deep, it is powerful. And from out of joy comes everything else. It is a decision. I think to look at it more biblically, it is a decision that we do by faith. And we move forward out of it. Darkness is just the opposite. Darkness is the, in, is the enemy in this time. And yet that seems to be where God works most often. In the middle of the dark. And it really makes sense. I, I'm married to an artist and she, she's telling me that, that for some lights to shine, you have to have pale lights around it, pale colors around it or dark colors around it. And that's how joy comes out. There's, it's, it's in the darkness, but the joy comes out and the light is more and more brilliant. If we wanna see the ideal of what God is looking for, we need to look at the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation. And that's the light, that's what we're hoping for, that's where we're going. And and I I hear people all the time, you know, just complain, you know, we need to get people more committed to Jesus. They're just not committed, they're just not committed, you need to get more committed to Jesus. And my response is, no, we need to get people to know Jesus. You know Jesus, and you're going to be committed to him. You're going to fall in love with him because when he works, there's where joy happens. When he's acting, that's where joy takes place. That's how joy springs up. And the darkness is, is, can be any kind of, any kind of uh, regret or shame or guilt or loss or, or injury, any of those things, That's what God delivers us from. He delivers us from that regret, from that shame, from that guilt, onto joy. He is working. And it's out of joy, I believe, that comes perseverance. It's out of joy that comes our hope. It's out of joy that sometimes tears flow out of our joy. And it's out of joy that we flourish. And I I believe that it's joy that opens that door communion with God I I have come to believe that this is so important that that when God acts the way he describes the response of the nation is increased joy and you will rejoice before you at the joy of the harvest and the plunder and basically he's saying that there will be victory over enemies he is saying that the things we had anxiety about before we, we will have we will have plenty of. We will have plenty of wholeness. We will have. He compares it to the time of the harvest, which in most cultures is just this incredible party. of I mean, we celebrate Thanksgiving in fall because it's the time of the harvest, and that's how God compares it to. That when he when he acts, it is the time of the harvest. That is when flourishing. And then he goes on to say that out of that joy. And out of God's acting he becomes human flourishing. And human flourishing happens under the rule of God. It happens under his watch, under his ruling. And in chapter 4, he says that all that oppression, all the enslavement, when he acts, that will be taken away. We will no longer be enslaved. We will no longer be oppressed. Uh, that is all destroyed. He says the instruments of cruelty will be destroyed, shattered, and there will be unexpected peace. He said like the, like the day of Midian. In other words, that was, that was the battle where, where Gideon won. You know, a total underdog. Total, you know, just no way this guy was going to win. But it was miraculous. And, God, and Isaiah is saying, this is what it's like. God will act. And it will be so unexpected. It will be so miraculous. It will be so thrilling to see that. And he said all those things that you worried about before, will be gone the the bar of the oppressor will be gone and then he goes on to say those boots that scare children as they march through the streets those will be gone and the garments and the instruments that are used for war and violence those things will be gone that is the hope and that brings joy and how is all this going to happen how is this how are we going to be living under god's rule god's governing rule How's this happen well he tells us in verse six in that famous famous passage Where he says, It will be a new way of governing because a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the authority will rest on his shoulders. And we will we'll, we'll try to apply that later on. And he will be a wonderful counselor, meaning he will be wise. He is discerning. He's somewhat shrewd to know how to handle things. Not like the politicians we see today. They will be wise. And just. And he says they will be, he will be a wonderful counselor, he will be a mighty God. In other words, he will have the entire entire power of God at his disposal. Everything that God is, he will have at his disposal. He will be the everlasting father. And I don't think he's just talking about the compassionate father, the caring father. I think he's talking about the generative father, too. That he will be making more and more and more and more and more children which is what we see now. That the, 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 that the, amount of, the number of children has exceeded the family, the, the ethnic family of Abraham, and now includes us. Most of us in here, I assume, the Gentiles. He is a generative father, procreating father. And he is the prince of peace. No chaos. He moves from chaos to order. And this prince of peace takes a lot of patience. War and violence is simply a symptom of impatience. But the Prince of Peace has patience. And he will take as long as it needs to bring about peace. And in verse 7, they bring it all together. He says, all these titles are cumulative. They all come together in this well-ordered, functioning, reliable, life-giving, governing rule of the child, the child who is born, he will grow. It, it says he will is a his, uh, his throne, his kingdom will continue to grow, and that's exactly what Jesus said. He said it will grow like a mustard seed. It'll start start small, but it'll continue to grow. It will be endless, never ending. It will be eternal. The throne of David will last forever. He will establish and uphold justice and righteousness. He will rule by fairness and he will rule by righteousness everything will be fair and good this is where our security comes from a government that is fair and secure and right and that only comes under the rule of the messiah under the rule of christ And one of the things that ends here with the zeal of the Lord host, I think what the author is trying to get at is that God has made this moral commitment to us. He has made this moral, compassionate, emotional commitment to this. It's not just something he decided arbitrarily. It is driven by a passionate, passionate love for us. This is the story in Isaiah's time, just like Isaiah 7 but Matthew takes this and moves it forward in Matthew chapter 4. And it takes this story and says, this is what we're looking at. This is that. This is what we were looking at. This is what Jesus is saying, that he is the child who is born. And you have to understand when Matthew is dealing with this, takes this passage in, in, the, New, in the New Testament, the backdrop here is the, is the execution of John the Baptist, where it feels like darkness has taken over. But Jesus, but Matthew says, no, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. And yes, it's dark. And yes, it looks like things are going badly. But this is, this is the light. And things will get worse before they get better, he says. But after, Jesus, after Matthew talks about this, that this is the, John the Baptist, and this is the child, this is what God is doing, and then what does Jesus do? He starts preaching about the kingdom. This is the kingdom of God. Like I said, I have wrestled with this word for a long time. And I feel like I needed to take a different approach to it. That joy is an act of faith. It is is something that transforms. It is the door that opens us up to the reality. And yes, these were former times. They were horrible. They're dark. But the latter times are full of light. The latter times are full of joy. I have been asked several times, uh, and even by um, fellow Christians, who say, do you really believe the resurrection is, is literally true, historically true? And I say, well, yeah, I do. And they'll say, well, I think it's metaphorical. I think we're talking about a metaphorical resurrection. And uh, you'll, you'll read that. If, you're, if you read widely, you'll hear you know, some theologians talk about this metaphorical resu- resurrection of, of Christ. And I'm thinking, I said, my response is, I'm sorry, but a metaphorical resurrection is not enough for me. Amen. It is real. It is not enough for me. And I would ask them, do you think a metaphorical resurrection was enough for the slaves in chains. Do you think the metaphorical resurrection is enough? Was enough for Desmond Tutu, or William Wilberforce, or any of us? It's not enough. This is real. This is reality. This is. This is truth, and beauty, and goodness. It has to be enough. This is when God acts and there is joy. Joy is the evidence of God acting. So if I were to describe this light, how would it look? I would describe it as those three wonderful attributes of beauty, goodness, and truth. I am attracted to the Savior, not because he is is true. I am not attracted to the Savior because he is beautiful or because he is good. I'm attracted to the Savior because he's all three, that he is beautiful, he is good, and he is true. Sometimes the truth comes in hard packages, but I know it's accompanied with goodness and beauty. Beauty is something that pleases us. Goodness is something that's for my well-being, and truth speaks of reality. And if I didn't believe this was real, I wouldn't be standing up here this morning It is true, it is good, and it is beautiful. If I were to sum up the spiritual life, the Christian spiritual life, I would say it's a combination of awe and surrender. And I really think those two things together bring us to our knees and bring joy. That we have to know awe, we have to be in awe of the Savior, and we have to surrender to him. We have to pay attention to those nudges in the ribs when he says, look, look with awe. And then our response is surrender to him. And we don't like that. We don't like that. Our ego gets in the way of our awe and our will gets in the way of our surrender. So we don't like that as human beings. But I will guarantee you that's where we're going to find joy in awe and surrender. All of what God is doing and surrendering what he's doing. He said he, it says here that, that the authority rests on his shoulders. And that's fine and good if we're sitting here thinking, okay, I'm just going to wait till Jesus uh, comes back and puts everything right and then I can't wait to get evacuated from this place. That's not it at all. If he is our authority, we need to submit to that. We need to surrender to that if we're gonna find joy. We need to do that and resist both our ego and our will. And we have to depend on some of these concrete encounters we have with other people, concrete encounters that we're gonna have in a moment with communion, concrete encounters with nature, with the the sunrise in the morning, those concrete examples, those those things that, that put awe into our hearts I mean, I can read it, but it's not the same thing as experiencing it. It's not the same thing as making it as a part of me who I am. All in surrender to the light. God is working, and that produces joy. Barbara Holmes is an African-American theologian, and she wrote a great book called Joy Unspeakable, and it's about the black Christian experience and the joy and how they experience joy in some very trying circumstances. And she includes a poem, and it says, uh, Joy unspeakable erupts when you least expect it, when the burden is greatest, when the hope is gone, after the bullets fly. Joy rises on the crest of impossibility, It sways to the rhythm of steadfast hearts and celebrates what we cannot see. And she goes on, he says, this joy beckons us not as individual monastics, but as a community. It is joy that lives as comfortably in the shout as it does in the silence. It is expressed in the diversity of personal spiritual disciplines and liturgical rituals. This joy is our strength. We need strength because we are well into the 21st century and we are not healed. How shall we navigate the 21st century without the inner strength of joy? Remember that song we used to sing in Sunday school? The joy of the Lord is my strength. You know. And what was the other verse? Uh, you know, if you want water, then ask for it. If you want joy, ask for it. Uh, and then the, the life of the living water, joy is the living water, and ask to drink of it, those kind of things. That's a silly song that we repeat over, and those phrases we repeat over and over and over again. We have it in our head. I probably put it in your head now, and you can't get it out of your head. The joy of the Lord is... High. But you remember, can you realize how true that is? That the strength actually comes from joy? And I think that's what Isaiah is saying, telling us here. That there is depth and power in joy. And it comes by recognizing where God is acting, where God is working. We are going to celebrate communion this morning together. <clears throat> and, and it is a, a concrete thing. It is a, a physical thing that we are going to do. Uh, take the bread and the wine. And I really believe that these, these are little portals to view the, mans- the, the immensity and the awesomeness of God. That encounter, encounter with a person or a friend, like Rob mentioned, a hug in the hallway. Those little things are little concrete things that open us up to the spaciousness of God. That open us up to the universe where God dwells. And I believe communion is one of those things. It's just a wafer and it's just a cup. But it's concrete and it opens us up to the awesome work of Christ on the cross Amen. and his resurrection. I'm going to read a, read a, a paragraph from um, Bonhoeffer's life together. Um, Jerry probably has it memorized, but she loves this book, and it, it is a wonderful book, but he talks about the Lord's Supper, and he says, the day of the Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy for the Christian community. "'reconciled in their hearts with God and the brethren. "'The congregation received the gift "'of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, "'and receiving that, it receives forgiveness, "'new life, and salvation. "'It is given new fellowship with God and men. "'The fellowship of the Lord's Supper "'is the superlative fulfillment of Christian fellowship. "'As the members of the congregation "'are united in body and blood at the table of the Lord, "'so will they be together in eternity.' Here, the community has reached its goal. Here, joy in Christ and his community is complete. The life of Christians together under the word has reached the perfection in the sacrament. If you remember the reason um, Jesus was accused of heresy and blasphemy, it's because he forgave sins. We take communion to declare that is the greatest truth of all time that we receive forgiveness, that we are filled with awe, and we are to surrender.